Mark Willis is a man on a mission to help you think differently about your money, your economy, and your future. He graduated with six figures of student loan debt and watched everybody lose their retirement savings and home equity in 2008. He knew that he needed to find a more predictable way to meet his financial objectives and those of his clients. As co-host of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, he shares some of his strategies for investing in real estate, paying for college without going broke, and creating an income in retirement you won't outlive. Mark works with people who want to grow their wealth in ways that are safe and predictable and to become their own source of financing and create tax-free income. Here's our conversation with Mark Willis. Welcome to the Invest Smarter Podcast, where we'll simplify investing and provide actionable ideas to help you navigate the markets and own your future. From retirement planning strategies in plain English to timeless investing wisdom, we'll cut through the noise and leave you a smarter investor by the end of every show. All content within the podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decision-making. All right, Mark Willis, welcome to the Invest Smarter Podcast. It's great to have you here. David, glad to be on, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm super excited. I know you have a lot to talk about. I've heard some of your other uh, podcasts and you're you know, you're well-spoken. You, you have some interesting ideas that I'm not so familiar with. And that's what this is all about, learning about new things and learning about potential ways to help uh, people invest smarter. And that's, that's what it's all about. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your background? Well, sure. Um, you know, the, the humble beginnings start with uh, six figures of student loan debt in 2008 and no job and no plan to pay off all the debt. So that's the, that's the wonderful start. That's the origin story here. <laughs> uh, we did. We, my wife and I, we graduated with three private school degrees between us. And when we graduated, it was 2008 where, you know, I don't know if your audience can recall, but there was some things going on in the world economy in 2008. Uh, I certainly didn't understand it at the time, but we were burdened with a mortgage payment called a Sally May monthly student loan payment. It felt like I'd married two women in college. David, I, I had my beautiful wife and Sally May in the, in the relationship and we oh, wanted boy. her out right away. Right. Yeah. Yep. So, so we got to business getting, getting after that debt. Uh, and in the midst of that, I was working alongside a CPA, helping her with some tax prep for some of her clients. And I was listening to some of her phone calls as she would tell them, Hey, Mr. Client, you're 62 years old, but, uh, I'm sorry to tell you this. I just lost you, you know, whatever, a half of your life savings or a third of your life savings. You can't retire. Like we thought you could. Yikes. That was sort of like being dropped into the front lines of a war. Uh, as a financial professional at the time. And I almost got out of the industry. I almost left and just did something else. But um, you know, I, I'm glad I didn't. We're now I'm a certified financial planner professional. We own the, uh, the firm in Chicago, Lake Growth Financial Services. We work with folks all over 50 states, all over the country, mostly over telephone or Zoom these days. And we do you know, soup to nuts, financial strategies for clients. We call ourselves the not your average financial planning firm because a lot of our concepts are counter to what you might hear uh, with most financial professional firms. So not to the exclusion of, but in addition or complementary to some of the strategies you guys offer. In fact, it's in my opinion, it's a, it's a wonderful relationship when we can combine what's not so average with what's been tried and true in equities, bonds, and more. So that's a little yeah. bit about my background. Yeah. And I would say not your average financial advisor is a very good name because when I was doing some research on you and what you were, what you're up to, and I listened to some of your podcasts, I got the sense that I had no clue what you were really talking about for a while. 
So it seemed very on average or not average. And I was, it took me a little while to even know what you were talking about. And I did some more research on Google and I got a sense, okay, this is some, you got some very not average strategy that's never even heard of. I've been in my, I've been in the industry for a few years and, you know, I've, I may have heard of some of the terms, but never actually knew anything more than just the name of them. And, and so I've sort of gone down this path of trying to understand some of this, not your average strategies you talk about. So why don't we, um, why don't you set up the premise of more of, of what even you just mentioned how you had to call someone and tell them you've lost or well, thank goodness. My CPA was the one I didn't have to make that terrible call, but I knew, and I promised myself, I did not ever want to make that call um, that I had to hear the, the, the wonderful competent professional CPA that I worked for at the time. Uh, she, she would have to make those calls. And for me, that was just a, a non-starter for where I wanted to take my financial practice. Yeah. Um, and it'll happen. And uh, you know, we've had three major market crashes just since the year 2000. Um, you tell me, but I'm betting that we're not done with volatility in our lifetimes. No, no we're not done with volatility. And that is one <laughs> of the biggest fears as a financial advisor is to have to make calls like that. Um, right. Yeah. Definitely one of the things that can keep you up at night. And when things get hairy, you know, it can start triggering emotions, which I'm guessing one of the one of the aspects of what you do is help managing emotions. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, so that's part of it is managing emotions. That's a great way to put it. Uh, we are humans. And the reason why robo advisors never totally took over our industry, thank goodness for all of our paycheck sick, uh, is because I think we need the human touch. We always will uh, in our finances. So part of this is really going to just be how do we best climb the mountain and more importantly, reach the goal of mountain climbing. So I want to pose a question to you, David, and also to your audience. What is the goal of climbing a mountain? What do you think? Just off the top of your head. Well, I think the, the answer in my head, it would be to get to the top. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Most anybody you ask, the goal is the summit, right? And I, I would agree. Yeah. My wife and I, when we uh, uh, were still dating at the time, we went to Japan and we climbed Mount Fuji. And boy, the goal was the summit. That was where it was. You know, In fact, you got a little stamp on your, your walking stick, the higher up you climb. But I'm going to say that the goal of climbing the mountain is not reaching the summit. In fact, there's a famous story of who successfully first climbed Mount Everest. And the story goes that in 1924, George Mallory and Andrew Sandy Irvine climbed the mountain. They, they, they were last seen at the second step at about 28,000 feet above sea level, and they were never seen again. So, you know, the question is, did they summit Mount Everest? Well, no one knows because we don't know where they ended up, but they didn't make it back down. And then finally, many years later, almost 30 years later, a couple um, from New Zealand and Nepal climbed and summited Mount Everest and came down. So my question is, who successfully climbed Mount Everest? It was the people who went up, but also came successfully back down to base camp. They successfully climbed Mount Everest. And that's the goal of financial planning. It's not to get to the highest peak. I don't care if your net worth is 1 million or 10 million or whatever at the top of retirement mountain. I want to know how do I safely come back down the mountain with all the earthquakes and snowfalls and rainstorms and lightning and everything else that happens in our portfolio, whether it's a pandemic or, you know, real estate correction or another dot-com bust or whatever the next black swan is, we need volatility buffers against that market madness 
and, and will help keep us safely back down the mountain and even hand off our provisions to our heirs, our next climbers, yeah. uh, so that they can climb the mountain too. That got me thinking also, you also want to enjoy the climb while you're climbing and have a good time and not constantly be worried about falling or having too much scariness happening when you're climbing. So that's also part yeah. of the, the journey. Enjoying the journey um, is is part of it because you don't want to have the journey have been so stressful that by the time you're about up and down, you're looking back and you're like, wow, that wasn't necessarily fun. Yeah. You know I mean, right, right. Well, there's a lot of joy and excitement in climbing a mountain, um, but it's actually nine out of 10 climbers died coming down Mount Everest last year. Nine out of 10. Last year? Last year. Yeah. So wow. what's the odds of us? It, it, it seems odd, right? It seems like going up would be dangerous. Coming down would be easy. You know, gravity's at your back, whatever. But I remember coming down Fuji was hard going up, but I felt like I was about to die coming down for a lot of reasons, uh, which, you know, biologists could probably get into this better than I could. But the key is goal of climbing a mountain is to reach the summit and then also come back down safely. Yeah. We got to find tools that can complement our investment portfolio to help us buffer against the turbulence and volatility of the market. Yeah. Okay. So, so why don't we just start to dive in a little bit into some of the tools you do use? Because I know that we have our, our philosophy is, is one of a low volatility philosophy. So we like, we have our own um, software that helps, um, that helps structure our portfolios to be, to minimize variance, but we can do it very in a customized fashion. So we do yeah. love low volatility, but of course you're still in a market where when things, when the, when the shit really hits the fan correlations inevitably do go to one and you still suffer some, some drawdown. Some, we, we like yeah. to think that we are setting it up for, for not quite as bad, but that still inevitably can happen. So, so what are, what is a tool that can actually even, uh, uh, mitigate some of that pain, even if you're investing in what you think sure. is one of the safest ways. Well, you know, you, you what you said it so well, I think uh, articulate it very well. Uh, the way I kind of talk about it with my clients over the phone or over Zoom is I say, hey, you know, it's great to put your eggs in 12 different baskets and we should. That's part of what makes a well-diversified portfolio. And as a certified financial planner and fiduciary for clients, we need to be thinking about all of the diversified asset classes that go with stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, TDFs, everything, all the uh, alphabet soup. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say if all of my eggs are in 12 baskets, but David, if all of my baskets are on the same truck and that truck goes over a cliff, what good did my baskets do? Not a lot, right? As you said, when correlation goes to one. Uh, so what we need is non-correlated assets. And you guys no, no doubt you incorporate some non-correlated assets as well here, but one tool in particular, one non-correlated asset that I found unbelievably powerful when it comes to managing market madness is whole life insurance designed for cash accumulation. So as you might know, there's kind of two kinds of life insurance. There's the kind you rent and the kind you own. Term insurance is what we rent for a little while and that's fine but the landlord keeps raising the rent on you and you have no equity in the term insurance policy, just like when you rent an apartment. When you own a policy, it's sort of like owning a house. You've built up wealth or equity in the policy. You have no raising of the rent. You know That premium does not get more expensive as you get older. Mm 
Okay. So, and maybe most importantly, there's a big liquid equity bucket called cash value inside the whole life insurance. And it has a beta or standard deviation, I'll say, of zero. Okay. And there is a one on the Richter scale for the efficient market frontier. So we've got a very safe asset, whole life insurance. And you couple that then with other assets like equities, and you can do a much better job of producing a wonderful, predictable income stream off of your total portfolio. I'll give you a case in point. Let's say, for example, I've got a, um, someone who's got $2 million in an IRA. He's 65 years old. And he wants to take $150,000 pre-tax from his IRA. But the market also wants to take some money out of that IRA. And in his first two years, he loses 14%. And then 26% back to back. That's pretty common. That's happened two times already in the last 20 years. So yeah, if you happen to retire a, the wrong a, year. There's a, there's, there's a thing that happens where when the market's been doing really well, people think, oh, it's time to retire. And they do that right, right before the market draws down. Which yes. is something that we have to always sort of just mention to clients that are getting close to retiring saying, you know, just be careful that if you're doing doing it during potentially a market peak, then you have to be careful with how much you're going to withdraw at the beginning and be very, very right. cognizant of that. Yes, yes, you're right. Well, you're right. Um, recency bias mm -hmm. is, is the problem there, all right? We only see what we just saw. Um, and so you're right. When we see the markets going up, we feel healthy, we feel rich, let's go ahead and retire. And, and I would say that's like at the top of the mountain, when you start to come down the mountain, you get an avalanche at your back. And when is it more dangerous to have an avalanche? Is it when you're at the very top of the mountain? Right, it is, right? More so than maybe a base camp where you can get out of the way. If you're at the top of that mountain when the avalanche or the earthquake hits you or the lightning strikes you, that's a big problem. When you lose half of your money, and this guy, in this guy's case, by age 65, he had 2 million bucks. After just two years of him taking 150 grand a year out of his IRA and also having some negative market years, he's down to a million bucks in just two years. After just two withdrawals, that's because of what we call double pain, the double pain of withdrawing money to spend at the grocery store and on the grandkids and also the market getting, you know, punching you in the, in the gut. So after two years, this guy's down half of his life savings. How do you think he's feeling David at that point? I would venture to guess he's feeling a lot of fear, just fear yeah. and regret, but he's probably already past that and just thinking, what the heck do I do next? Yeah. 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 I mean, even if the market rebounds, he's got less money to have like the bounce back, right? Because he sucked most of his money, a million dollars gone in two years. Um, and he doesn't have the kind of cash to see it bounce back. He doesn't have the participation uh, ammunition to enjoy that bounce back. Now, so, from, from my perspective, yeah. being the traditional uh, allocator, I would say his allocation was potentially not correct for his situation. If he's not able to tolerate or if his plan cannot tolerate that drawdown, right. then he should be much more heavily weighted towards um, bonds and bonds, fixed income. So what's the problem with bonds? Why not just do this in, in a, in, in a typical stock bond split? Well, we all know how bonds are doing these days in terms of yield. Yeah, they don't, so, they don't give you much cash. Right. So if we want a higher income, he'll either have to sacrifice income and live on Instead of 150 grand a year, maybe he has to live on 90 grand a year. You know, the, the best research from David Blanchett and Wade Fow says that he shouldn't take on a stock bond split, he shouldn't take more than 2.8% of his money 
uh, out in retirement. So let's do the math on that. That means a 2.8% withdrawal rate, no longer the 4% rule. That was back in the 90s when we had higher inflation and we had or higher interest rates and, and better markets. Now with uh, lower interest rates on bonds, the best research on retirement from Morningstar, David Blanchett and Wade Fowle says, take no more than 2.8% of your money out each year. So on 2 million bucks, you don't wanna know what his recommended income stream should be off, off this. If it was a stock bond split, should be only about 56,000 bucks. Now that's not a lot of money off $2 million. That's not quite the millionaire lifestyle that we're, we're used to, right? So what could we do? What's our option? Well, if he had a volatility buffer using a whole life insurance policy as a replacement for his bonds, or at least in combination with bonds, but certainly too, it could be done as a replacement for the bond portfolio. Step one, he can get higher returns on his stocks because he has no bonds to have to worry about. Step two, the life insurance itself does a better job in terms of yield than a bond portfolio would. And, and this is crucial, he can take from his stock portfolio when the market is up, but when the market's crashing, he takes from his life insurance instead. That's a lot of flexibility. Yeah. The life insurance is tax-free when you access it. So he only has to take he had to take 150 grand out of his IRA. He only has to take 100 grand tax-free out of his life insurance. And after three years here, even with the same returns, he's got, instead of 1 million left in his account, he's got 1.6 million left in his account. And he's able to take, every year the market crashes, a lot more money. And instead of having 900 grand at age 80 without the volatility buffer, 900 grand is all he had left at age 80. Instead of that, with the volatility buffer, if he took three or four years out of his whole life insurance on those down market years from age 65 to age 80, instead of 900 grand left, he'd have $3.8 million left, David, still in his IRA. Powerful numbers. They sound great. And I, and I don't doubt you. Um, no question though, you'd hear lots of objections to, um, to life insurance in general. It has a bad rap on the street. You know, it has a bad rap in the way it's sold traditionally. So I think we should walk through some of why some of the biggest objections are maybe not so true. I know like um, I've heard like Dave Ramsey just completely crush this whole concept, you know, but Dave Ramsey is kind of a one track mind. Um, so, so I guess the first objection that I would hear a lot is, there's no such thing as a guaranteed 4%. Not in the stock market. Um, you know, how can, how can someone say no such thing? I've got nine or 10 of these policies myself. They've been around for hundreds of years. You know, we've made it clear that the guarantee is, it's not little old me in Chicago doing this guarantee. It's the life insurance company offering that guarantee. So I don't know what to tell folks uh, that say there's no such thing. Um, yeah, guarantees are an interesting word in the financial universe, David. Um, as you know, we can't really just go around throwing the word guarantee around with our clients. So thankfully, it's not me giving this guarantee. It's not little old me in Chicago saying guarantee. It's the insurance companies that have been around for centuries, uh, 100 plus years, 150 years, 175 years. Some of these companies have been around longer than the stock market, longer than the income tax in this country. So that's, that's an impressive longevity to be able to continue to make a promise 
I'm okay with a company that's been making and keeping promises through multiple pandemics, you know, multiple yeah. depressions and recessions. So I don't know, is it guaranteed? I mean, nothing on this side of heaven is guaranteed ultimately, but you know, as far as the financial universe goes, it's about as guaranteed as it gets. And they use the word. So what can we say? Yeah. I mean, they do use the word. It's not technically a financial product. Well, there is a financial component to it, I suppose. But I, the one thing that always, you know, I can't quite understand in my head thinking about a 4% guarantee in this low interest world is how are they actually managing to come up with a 4% consistently? And I guess one way would be the interest that they get from from the loans that policyholders take out and I guess the premium payments as well. So they're sort of, is, am I correct that they're actually paying um, the, the, the 4% dividend or interest is sort of a repayment of the premium that you've paid or it's part of the death benefit or yeah. am, I, am I on? Yeah. To something? You know, it's, it's very simple, you know, from one perspective, we can certainly get very complicated with some of the, the naming and rights and features but very clearly they're in the insurance business. That's what they do. You know, they're not an investment firm. They're not a hedge fund. Uh, they have a bond portfolio and a real estate portfolio and they have a general account, but their job is to maintain that general fund to pay out death benefits. So let's say David, for example, you buy a, a whole life insurance policy with a million dollar death benefit. Okay. And you're putting in money and however old you are, um, you know, let's say, let's say that you're at this age, you have a 0.000% chance of dying, but they know two people your age out of 10,000 are going to die this year. So on a guaranteed basis, pretty close to, you know, accurate, scarily accurate, actually, they use the actuarial science of, of the law of large numbers to tell us here's exactly how many people your age, David, they don't know if it's going to be David or Joe or Josephine, but they know two out of 10,000 of people your age are going to die. So they price that into the premium you pay. And if you make it this year, you get a guaranteed cash value increase. Now, why will they guarantee that? Well, they know you're a year older. You got another candle on the cake. So you're more likely to croak this year than you were last year. So that guaranteed increase is actually them up in the ante on you. They're like, hey, hey, David's getting older. Let's give him a little more money to walk away from this policy. That way we don't have to pay his family a million bucks. He'll get a hundred grand today. Well, he just had a birthday again. Let's give him 110 grand now, 120 grand, 140 grand, 180. As you, as you age, they're giving you more money to walk away from this contract. They're like, whoa, he's getting older. So it's a liability on their books, the death benefit that is, but it's an asset on your balance sheet. And that's where they give us that guarantee. So, okay, so it's the insurance company giving us that guarantee. How do they do it? Well, they keep a lot of our death benefit in cash, pure cash or cash equivalents. And then they're getting fixed income assets at like institutionally large uh, investment grade corporate bonds, real estate portfolios, things that us mere mortals don't quite have access to. At least I don't. Right. You have to put like 10 million a week into these things. So that's where they're getting their portfolio. It's kind of like the old Costco effect. You know, mm -hmm. go to Costco, you get a better yield on your bananas than if you go to pure retail grocery. So it's sort of the same with, with life insurance companies. But again, their core business model is collecting premium and calculating risk, which is kind of what, you know, calculating risk, that sounds a lot like taking the right steps down a mountainside. 
Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So they've got years and years of experience, have this all mapped out. So and they've have they ever not paid out the four percent? Well, let me give you an example here. So in 2008, yeah. there were 428 banks, not bank branches, entire banks that went bankrupt in 2008. Zero mutual life insurance companies went bankrupt in that same time. So that's to give you some context here. Now, one insurance company that I could find did go bankrupt in 2008. It was a tiny little company I wouldn't have recommended. So what happened to those guys? Well, they went out of existence. They just started 20 years ago, but they went out of existence and another insurance company stepped in to buy all the policies and they kept those guarantees going. And in fact, that's what the state insurance commissioner of Texas, where this company was, Lincoln Memorial or something like that, um, where they, they went out of business State insurance commissioner steps in, says, hey, you have to keep these guarantees. And another insurance company uh, ponied up and said, we'll take those contracts. We'll continue the guarantees. So essentially, the only change that happened for the average policyholder at this now defunct insurance company, the only change was the banner at the top of their logo, uh, at the top of their annual statements on these whole life policies. So is it is it totally risk-free? I mean, I mean, zombie apocalypse style risk-free? I don't know. I mean, at some point, the whole world turns to firewood, I guess. But <laughs> for most financial nightmare scenarios, it's about as safe as you can park your cash, which again, back to diversification, we want some money off the truck so that when the market does take a nosedive, and it always does, but it always returns, it always bounces back too. So in the interim, have four or five years worth of your income stashed away in a high cash value, low commission bank on yourself designed whole life policy. Okay. Not the kind that Dave Ramsey talks about, but low commission as low a death benefit as we can get away with and as high cash as we can build as fast as we can. So what are the downsides to this thing? I'd say the hardest part to this is just having the foresight to do it. You couldn't really build this up if you're like going to retire next Tuesday. You probably need to start something like this five or six years before you retire. So you've packed in enough money into the thing before you retire. So that's one of the, the big stopping points. You still have to think far enough in advance to set this up in advance of your retirement. Gotcha. Let's think about a practical example of how someone could use a bank on yourself type policy, but they also for sure want to have the exposure that they want in the stock market. So how can they have their cake and eat it too, in a sense. Yeah. Well, you know, as, as mentioned, uh, the gentleman who was 65, uh, he still had some money set aside in his IRA, plenty of money set aside in his IRA, but he decided with, along with his financial planner to have four or five years of living expenses set aside into the cash value of his policy. Now, once he retired, he was no longer funding the policy and he was no longer contributing to the IRA. He was just taking money out. He was living off those, those benefits. And as he spends that money, one of the interesting pieces is uh, life insurance has no required minimum distributions. It's tax-free. Uh, under current law, there's no taxes due. Uh, he's able to avoid Medicare tax, and he's able to avoid the provisional income on Social Security. So all of that stays private and off the radar of the IRS. Uh, meanwhile, his IRA continues to perform well. If you were to look at the withdrawal rate, remember earlier in our interview, I said the best research on retirement withdrawal rates is to take no more than about 2.8, 3% of your money out each year. 
And I said, on 2 million bucks, you shouldn't really take more than about 56 grand out of your money. Well, using this volatility buffer regularly, we're seeing clients be able to withdraw more like eight or even 12% out of their portfolios each year. So it truly maximizes the stream of income you can enjoy as you come down the mountain. Because we're not having to hold so much of our money hidden inside stocks and bonds, hoping and praying the market crashes or doesn't crash rather. Um, because again, we don't have to worry about that double pain of the market sucking money out of our accounts while we're pulling money out for groceries and the grandkids. So that's our case study example. I can go deeper into that if you want to, David, but that's kind of the end of the story for this guy. He, In fact, he took some of the money out of his IRA and kept funding his life insurance so that he could beef up a, beef up a tax-free inheritance to his kids, which is a whole other part of the conversation. Gotcha. So so that's that's one way. And I guess I was sort of, so he was, he had his IRA already existing outside and then he used, set up a separate policy and started funding it. What about, is there any strategy that could be where you actually borrow from the policy to invest? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, we have a whole set of episodes on our podcast, not your average financial podcast. We talk about how you can uh, use the policy to bank on yourself with your investment portfolio and how it can help increase your returns without any additional market risk. You know, you're, you're um, on the way toward uh, some pretty awesome designations in the financial universe, David. I think it's awesome you know, continuing to pursue, uh, you know, the best strategies for your clients. So, you know, about, you know, the efficient market frontier and the ability to, you know, pull on risk assets and pull on risk-free assets so that they work in tandem with each other. And the more you can hold on to a risk-free asset, the more you can stretch that risk asset to get higher yield. So if you've got you know, on a scale of one to, let's say you've got something that's 20% safe. You can only go out 80% on the risk side of your barbell. But if you find something that's 100% safe, you can go further out on the risk side and take more risk and have a little more fun. And even, and here's something cool. You can even borrow against the life insurance if it's designed with a non-direct loan. Now, most companies don't. In fact, some of the names of the companies that were mentioned uh, in previous episodes, they, those are companies that do not fit a bank on yourself design because when you borrow against some insurance contracts, um, they will stop the growth on that part of your policy. When I borrow, let's say I've got a hundred grand of cash value and I borrow out 30,000 to go invest in the market or to buy a car or anything else. Well, I'm only going to get earnings on the last 70 grand, the money I didn't borrow against out of my policy. But if I have a non-direct loan and only certain companies offer non-direct loans on policies, it allows continuous compounding where the money continues to grow even on the capital you borrow. So if you were to borrow, let's say, you know, 30 grand to go invest in uh, some of the investment strategies you guys might recommend, then not only do you get the wonderful returns you guys can help your clients achieve, let's say 15% or whatever, let's say you got 15% on your 30 grand, well, you'll still get continuous growth on the, on the full 100 grand in your policy as if you hadn't touched a dime of the money. So that's, that's helping you up the mountain, go up the mountain toward retirement. And then of course, we've already talked about how whole life insurance can help us glide back down the mountain safely 
uh, using the volatility buffer strategy. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty powerful, the idea that you still get the, the interest on the full amount because um, that's sort of offsetting the interest that you are going to pay on the loan you took. Right. And so, yep, that's right. Right, and so, so you could theoretically have your entire financial life, assuming you just assume you didn't even have an IRA, your entire financial life was just founded upon the bank on yourself concept where everything is funneled into it and then out of it for your investment and for your cash needs. That's, um, that's what a lot of our clients do, to be very blunt with you. Um, they, they see this as the parking space for their money. In the, and just like my garage is my parking space for my car, I don't leave my, my car in my garage. That doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, my car wasn't built to sit there in my garage unless it's 2020 and we're not going anywhere, I guess. But most of the time, cars are supposed to be taken out and go on a pleasure drive or go on a business trip where I can get a return on investment for that business trip. So the goal with my money is to always be coming back to my garage, which is my policy. So I'll take money out of my policy and pay my tax bill, or I'll take money out of my policy and invest in some real estate, or I'll take money out of my policy and invest anywhere I want, um, fix up my kitchen. You know, there's no prohibited transaction there. And as I'm ready and want to, I, I'm always bringing my money back into my garage, my policies. And you're right. You could use this, and I do, like a cash management system. It's a space where my money resides before I need to use it again. And that's all. Yeah. Uh, yep. I think that's one of the most fascinating parts about it to me is that it's a whole different way of thinking about or it changes your whole relationship with your money. It's, a, it's, a, it's, like, a, it's like a, what do you call it? A, uh, I'm losing the word right now. A... Uh, a shift of oh, like a paradigm shift, the paradigm, that paradigm shift. Yeah. It's like a yep. shift of, of how you think about money that just seems so underutilized or underused potentially. Um, sure. And I, I just find that very interesting. Now, how has this changed like your business personally? Like how has it changed um, your relationships with your clients and has it, has it had a, like a massively beneficial effect to how you, you run things? Well, I'll tell some stories. Uh, so very simple. You don't have to be a Rockefeller to start these, although the Rockefellers do use whole life insurance. Every single Rockefeller born today and has since you know the 1880s, as soon as the baby's born, they're getting policies on those kiddos. Um, but you don't have to be that wealthy to start one of these. There's a couple, um, uh, actually it's, a, it's a, a lady, her sister and her brother. And I met the lady first and she was just wonderful, like very earnest to get started, to become a, become her own source of financing, to bank on herself, but she could only do a couple hundred bucks a month. So that's what we did. We started a policy at a couple hundred bucks a month and she brought her sister in to have a conversation. She brought her brother in, she brought her other sister in, she brought her mom in, and now they're all a family bank. And that's how they call it. They say it that way. They call it a shareholder meeting when they get the whole family together. And they say, this is our family bank. All of our policies, we'll add them all up. And we are better together than we are alone. And hey, if you need a car, sister, you better not go to Toyota Finance or Lexus Finance or whatever. You're coming to the family bank and you're going to get your loan from us. And we'll make sure you get us paid back on your schedule. Because these loans, by the way, it's up to you when and how you pay the loan off. So the family gets together, they make their arrangements, they look at their dividend statements on these policies every year. And it's a 
it's literally for them, it's a family office without a bunch of attorneys getting involved. You know, that's just a couple hundred bucks a month, each of these guys. No, nobody's super wealthy there, but what an inspiring story for breaking free of the traditional traps that keep us locked into, you know, the car loans and the student loans and the mortgages and all that mess. If we could just, I almost don't care what your mutual fund got you last year. If you're spending a third of your income on debt, you're not winning. You know, and the average American, according to the U.S. Commerce Bureau, spends about a third of their income servicing debt, mortgages, student loans, car loans, all that mess. So this family is one little family, but they're breaking free uh, and they're not having to, you know, they're not they're, they're not daddy warbucks or anything. They're just trying what they can to get started. And it works over time. It works. Uh, but it does take patience uh, and commitment for sure. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like the it ends up being really great, but it definitely requires the patience, the persistence, the, the willpower and the just sticking to the plan to keep, you know, paying and, um, yeah, the, the premiums, and I guess. And with this, you, you're actually paying extra, right? It's like paid up additions into the policy that, so you can, and I was going, I wanted to ask, is there any limit to how much you can pay into the policy? Like, could I open up a policy and just slap 500 K in there tomorrow? Yeah, you could. There's no government restrictions. The only restriction is what the insurance company will allow you to put in. And if they say, hey, we're all full over here, you just go to another company. As long as you're, usually it's tied to your income and your age and there's some factors there. But, you know, David, I'd say the first thing you want to do is one, work with a bank on yourself professional. And that is a key because there are 400,000 life insurance agents out there who would love to sell you a big, expensive, commission-laden life insurance policy. And for all of those 400,000, maybe two or 300 really know how to structure this right. And honestly, I've seen people who call it infinite this and private banking that. And there's enough people on YouTube and podcasts these days with their own platform, but they have no credential. I hate to be this blunt about it, but Really, it's kind of like the CFP. It's kind of like organic food. You know, whenever you go to the grocery store, you know, when you see that label, organic, USDA organic, that there were 30 things that that food had to do to equal, to get that label. And if, without bank on yourself, as like in the email signature of the person you're working with, without bank on yourself professional written right there or somewhere in their marketing, it's very likely that they just heard about this on the internet, just like we're doing today, right? Another podcast. But right. you really need to have a bank on yourself professional design this right. And they'll look at it. They'll structure it correctly. They'll make sure it's designed with paid up edition writers, non-direct loans. Um, the load costs on PUAs have to be low. The interest rate has to be simple. There's about 30 things that we I've keep, kept up with that we have to have to make it a bank on yourself policy. Yeah, it's kind of like the USDA organic label. You can have plenty of all natural granola bars, David, but that doesn't mean a whole lot, right? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I wanted to get to, there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of in the financial community, a lot of people that would look upon this as a blanket statement, say it's bad, no matter what, without listening to it at all, without doing any research. Um, so what? how did that come to be, do you think? Like, how did it come to be that fiduciary financial planners, um, a lot of them are in some sort of, they have a little thing that they believe is right. And then they just, anything else is wrong. If it's insurance, it's wrong. So how did that even come to be? Cause I'm young in the industry. So maybe I yeah. haven't experienced it or witnessed it or, but it seems to David, be, you and I, 
if you sell insurance, insurance, it seems to be you're an evil person. Yeah. I, well, um, I'm, you might ask my wife on the wrong day. She might agree with you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm pretty young too. I guess I was brainwashed a different way. I am a certified financial planner. Uh, I also had experience and worked in the stocks, bonds, mutual funds world. Uh, I don't see this as either or. I see it as both and. It's both and. I can have my policy and I can invest in real estate. I can And I can invest in the stock market. And I can use this policy to send my kid to college. If this is evil, I don't want to, I don't know what to tell somebody, but just do your due diligence, investigate for yourself. And here's my thought as to why I think Wall Street isn't exactly thrilled. Because think about it, honestly. I mean, just be, be very honest with ourselves here. If you ask a barber, if you should grow out your hair, what's his answer going to be, David? Uh, of course, grow the hair out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah. So I think with Wall Street, if you're telling Mr. Wall Street guy, hey, I plan to put three grand a month into my tax-free guaranteed to grow for me liquid and predictable whole life insurance policy, as opposed to your asset center management, that's going to be ultimately money out of his pocket. Um, even if he's open-minded, that's still going to hurt his bottom line. So the best fiduciary um, advice is what's best for your client. And that's what a fiduciary is. So the question is not, how much am I going to get paid on this? The question is, how do we help our clients meet, our go meet their goals without taking unnecessary risk? Uh, that's at least a, 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 an average definition of a fiduciary. How do we help our clients in the best way reach their goals without taking unnecessary risk? And at least whole life insurance should be considered if it's designed correctly. Uh, I totally agree with Dave Ramsey. 95% of the time, whole life insurance is not uh, designed this bank on yourself way. So in that 95% of the time, he's correct. And maybe he just doesn't want to make the exception for the other five. Or maybe he's got a battleship going at 100 miles an hour with his radio program. And maybe he hasn't found this yet. Or maybe he's unwilling to see the exception. That's his life, you know. Uh, as far as I can tell, with the over a thousand clients we have at our firm, it works and it keeps working. If it doesn't work, somebody better tell me quick because I got a lot of phone calls to make. <laughs> very, very cool. Yeah. I mean, like as a fiduciary myself, I view my responsibility to, to be open-minded and explore all possibilities. So even though I'm, I may not get compensated for recommending that someone I might say, maybe this back on yourself makes some sense for you. I recommend so-and-so that's still me doing my duty as a fiduciary, even though I'm not going to get paid for it. So that's anyone good, man. Who's, that's awesome. Yeah. 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 Well, you guys are obviously doing the right thing. And just by this conversation's sake and your willingness to discuss this, I think it's, it's at least worth the exploration, both for, for you and me to partner together for your clients to be better off. And again, as you said, before we hit record, it's wonderful to see all the ways we can collaborate. And again, it's, it's, it's like nitro and glycerin. When you put whole life insurance with investments, you have wonderful things happen. It's like peanut butter and jelly, like Thelma and Louise, Batman and Robin. If you do this right, you can do a better withdrawal rate off your overall portfolio than you could on its own. Better than whole life on its own is investments plus whole life. Okay, so it's, it's the same on both sides and it's a great way to serve our clients. Great. Yeah. So, so for anyone out there who might be interested in learning more about this, um, what would you say? Well, you know, first call David because he's got your back. He knows you guys. 
and call him first. And David can get you in touch with me. Uh, if you want to find our, our podcast, you can listen to this strategy more at Not Your Average Financial Podcast. Um, but David, you and I, I've shared my email with you. I think folks should talk to you first and make sure that this is the right move for them. And then I'd be happy to chat with you and them together. We can get on a three-way Zoom call. We can go from there. All right. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the call and I appreciate that. Um, it was great talking to you and I do look forward to talking with you more soon. Awesome. Keep up the good work. All right. Thanks. You too. Email us at investsmarterpod at gmail.com with questions to be highlighted on the show. Thanks for listening and keep investing smarter.